Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 49, Python Tutor with Philip Guo. My name is Sean Tiber and I'm a coder who teaches. And my name is Kelly Schuster Paredes and I'm a teacher who codes. Yeah, so welcome, Philip. It's great to have you on the show this week. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm a longtime listener. I forgot where I discovered this podcast, actually, but I'm, I'm glad I discovered it. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you. And we're also very thankful for the thing that you've created, which is Python Tutor. If you haven't used it already, it's a website that allows you to visualize your code in new and interesting ways. So before we get into the, the meat of that conversation, we're going to start the same place we always do, which is with the win of the week. And as is our tradition, we're going to make Philip go first. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I wanted you to go first. <laughs> I guess the win of the week for me is we're we're about to start teaching at, at UC San Diego, where I work. And then usually before teaching starts, we have these research deadlines in my field. So the win of the week was that my students and I successfully submitted a few papers. So we, we got these research papers submitted, I think it was Friday, <laughs> so right before this weekend. So that was, that was definitely a win. Not a huge good. win, trying to get one of those papers submitted. That's great. Congratulations. Great. Thanks. Well done. Well I'm done. going next. All right, go ahead, Kelly. <laughs> Sometimes he picks me, and then I don't have anything. He does the same thing to me, Philip, so don't worry. <laughs> so it is our... We just finished our six week or our five and a half week of our first quarter. And this is my favorite time of the quarter because we have quarter classes, nine-week classes, and I teach sixth graders that know absolutely nothing. I tell them I just dropped them off in Germany and they don't even know how to use the bathroom. <laughs> and because no one speaks English, I say, but everyone speaks English in Germany, but I still lie to them. <laughs> so anyways, but it's the five and a half week mark and all the light bulbs have been clicking. And it's such a huge win for me this time of the quarter because I go through five and a half weeks of parents calling me and telling me that I'm a miserable, horrible, uh, hard teacher and I'm scaring their children and they can't believe that they're going to code. And then all of a sudden I'm getting like love letters. You're the best teacher ever. And I love coding. So it's a really good win. It's always my uh, time of the year that I look forward to. That's really great. I, I look forward to that click happening at, in all of our classes. It seems to happen right around this time. And the best part about it is it happens at a different time for everyone. So it's not something you can immediately predict, but every student has their own click. And that's pretty awesome to see. Yeah. And your win? So for, for me, the win was something that I, I haven't actually taught before. And I was a little bit scared of it, actually, to be honest. I started teaching my eighth grade students who I've had for the previous two years I started teaching them about object-oriented design principles in Python, and I was always a little worried that they weren't ready for it or that it would be too hard or too complicated for them. And it was phenomenal. It went way better than I thought it was going to. And I don't know that it was necessarily me explaining it in a certain way or a specific way, but just taking the time to really slow down and talk through it seemed to work really well for them. And they got it, and we got all the way to making subclasses and inheritance and things like that. So the students were seeing how they could define some of this data. And I think it also helped that the expectations that we set at the beginning for all of us were pretty reasonable. The goal is not that they're going to write all their own classes from now on, but that they can start using classes and understanding how they can use them in their programs. My favorite part was we were using the classic case of we're going to define a car class and then we're going to make like a Nissan class or a subclass of it. And when they saw that it 
inherited everything from the parent car class. They're like, this is really smart. Like, so, who came up with this idea? This is really smart. And I said, well, of course I did. This is my idea. <laughs> I said, no, there's really smart people that have been working on this for a long time. And I think they really just thought that it was a, a cool thing and, and went way better than I thought it was going to. So that was pretty satisfying. That's very cool. Yeah, I, we always talk about that. And it's something that people always throw in when they do the game design and they start with all these classes and the kids come in and they can copy the code, but they really don't get understand the concept. And I know I struggle with it constantly, even rereading the that chapter <laughs> from uh, um, Paul Craven's book about constructors. And it's still something that is still not tangible as much as for me and it was good to see the kids starting to get it it was pretty cool yeah i think it's really going to help them mm-hmm. so we also have the fail of the week and we don't make <laughs> our guests go first on the fail of the week <laughs> so the the fail of the week is just something that has happened that didn't go as planned and what we did to try to fix it and make it something that is acceptable failure is a part of success and we want to make sure that we're modeling that for our students so kelly would you like to go first on this one yeah and i'm actually going to throw kind of philip in i was researching about him and it made me think about this this fail you were talking about that fear how of of kids computer science it's more than just it's more than just teaching them how to code it's first trying to get through that fear and i think that's i kind of had an aha moment last night when i was reading it i was like I probably could do get rid of that four or five weeks of parents emailing me, kids getting upset because they don't understand and kind of, I've got to think of a different way, maybe like a a timeline. I'm going to have them mark off a timeline, but I, I, I realized that I need to get something for them to look forward to went that click moment so something visual like here we are guys here's where the click's going to happen I promise you I've seen it now for three years eight 16 times a year because we have a lot of classes within a year and we see it and I think that's a huge fail that I I just recognized yesterday like why haven't I been documenting this better so I'm going to try that next quarter yeah, maybe we can even put up like a timeline on the board or like <laughs> something. something that's like on the wall where people can put their sticker on the board <gasps> when they, they have their moment. Like I got it and have it show up and almost do like a, I, I'm like visualizing it as like a cluster analysis now. Like uh, we can see like the clustering of data points. Don't get all statistical on me. <laughs> <laughs> Philip, do you have a fail? Yeah, I guess like just thinking about the past week. So we, we had these research deadlines. It was really intense. My students and I are focusing, but it was also the orientation time for the new graduate students in our department. And I wasn't able to participate as much in these events. So we planned these Zoom events and stuff. So I, I dropped by a little bit, but you know, I could have probably done better on that but we were just so focused on these research deadlines so you know hopefully i'll get to connect with the newer students in the coming weeks better but you know there's only limited time in in the week unfortunately absolutely yep i think that i I had that same thing happen to me on friday where it was i was supposed to be somewhere uh, in, in fact i think this is my fail of the week i was supposed to be on a zoom call with my students and kelly was covering for me and i just forgot to give her the <laughs> access to the zoom to be able to start it so my students were the winners in this one they were the ones that overcame the failure because there wasn't the zoom open they all just pulled out their phones and they started texting the kids that were home and helping them get started with what needed to happen that day so it's pretty cool to see 13 14 year old kids figure out some resilience and help each other out 
And it was a pretty cool thing to see that out of my failure came their, you know, own determination to make it work. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point that like, I think that's something really rewarding, right? Of The assumption is if, if the teacher or the supervisor isn't around, then either the students just are slacking off and doing whatever, or they disconnect. But I think it's really inspiring. And I guess it, you know, speaks to both your leadership too, that you set an environment where even when you're not around, so I've, I've heard from colleagues that we run research labs or we teach classes and stuff. And I think the real indicator is when, if you're out of town or you have to be gone for something, if your students actually step up and self-organize, then that's really inspiring, I think. Yeah, well, it helped that the planned lesson for the day was figuring out how to code Python in Minecraft. So it was something they were really <laughs> excited to do anyways. But they are, they're pretty special. This is a group of students that I've worked with for the past three years now. And it's, I've built relationships with all of them. And it's much easier to set expectations with mm -hmm. students after a few years than it is in that first year. That's great. Yeah. So, Philip, we're so excited to jump right into Python Tutor, but first, can you introduce yourself a little bit, the role that you have today, what you're working on, how you learned Python in the first place, and then how you came up with Python Tutor yeah. and how it came to be? Wow, that's a lot. Of, I'll try to be super brief. <laughs> It'll take up the whole hour. So currently, I'm a, I'm a professor in the Cognitive Science Department at UC San Diego. So my, my teaching and my research are all around kind of very relevant things of, of kind of technologies for learning. We do studies of people learning programming. So the two focuses I have are really uh, learning programming and data science, which are both very related. So we do, we do kind of empirical studies of how people learn, why, what motivates them to learn. And also we build prototype tools. So we build new kinds of tools for helping people clean data or helping people visualize data or helping people, you know, visualize program execution. And my teaching and my academic background is actually around human-computer interaction. So in industry, that's commonly known as UX or user experience design. So it's actually really funny that thinking about coming on this podcast that, one, I have no experience with K-12. So I have no K-12 experience. Second, it's funny because I actually, I'm in the cognitive science department, but I actually don't have any formal training in cognitive science or cognitive psychology or those things because our department's really interesting because we have people from very interdisciplinary backgrounds. So my background is in computer science. I work in software engineering. I work in software. And the third part that's it's really funny is that I actually don't teach Python. So, <laughs> like, I've actually never taught Python besides this one informal thing I did in grad school. I just, some nearby company was like, oh, we saw you wrote some blog posts back in the day about Python and stuff. So can you just come informally teach it to our, some of our, our, like, people who are kind of scientists and people who are not software engineers. They're just like, we just want to learn a little about it. So then I came up with these really informal lessons where we just drew on the whiteboard. This is, gosh, this is over a dozen years ago. This is 2008, before any of these tools existed. And then I ended up drawing these diagrams on the whiteboard, like what we normally draw, right? These pointer diagrams or data structures or numbers and variables. And then that kind of led me to thinking about how could we try to make a tool to generate these somewhat automatically. And that's where the Python Tutor project started. And it was really just this personal open source side project of mine. It wasn't really related to my official research at school or anything. And then it just kind of took off in the past decade because of these online courses, right? These MOOCs, a lot of intro CS courses are taught in Python. 
also in universities, right? So a lot of schools switched from, say, Java to Python as a first language. So all the stuff got popular so that the tool just got more word of mouth and more people shared the links. And it's also purposely meant to be easy to onboard, just kind of paste code in. There's no login, there's no accounts, we're not tracking your status or personal information. So this like really lightweight tool, especially back when it was made like 10 years ago, there really wasn't anything like it, right? This is way before things like Repolit or VS Code Online or any of these kinds of, or Glitch or any of these kinds of things where you can just paste code. And even today, like there's a lot of online IDEs and REPLs, but there's really nothing else that where you can actually paste in code and see the visual debugging kind of step by step in this very um, intuitive way. So it's kind of kind of take on a life of its own in a way, which has been a fortunate occurrence. Yeah, we found in our classroom that it fills a really interesting gap in the learning process for students where they know enough about, okay, my code executes sequentially or that it has different flows that it can take and that I'm storing and retrieving information in the system but I'm not ready to jump into an IDE with a debugger or an online system or something like that, or the using the REPL interactively is still kind of confusing. Like, how do I even know how to get the information back out? And so I can point students to Python Tutor and say, okay, paste your code in here and then run it. And I don't have to teach them about breakpoints. I don't have to teach them about continues, step over, step into, all of those things that you would get with a normal debugger. They have a next button and they can say next. And it really, for that stage of their learning, really fills an interesting gap in their knowledge and helps them move on to that next stage of once they are ready for a debugger to be able to say, well, it's just like this part of Python Tutor but now you have a few more tools at your disposal. Yeah, that's a great point, like this sort of easy onboarding, right? So like, like you mentioned with a REPL or even, well, with the debugger, it's much harder to use because they need to know to actively put a breakpoint and say, watch this or whatever. But even like you said with a REPL, they have to kind of actively interrogate it. They have to know, I want to print out this thing or I want to query this variable or whatever it is. But with something like Python Tutor, because everything's just laid out for you, you just step through it. And of course, the caveat is, you can only use it on kind of smallish programs because yeah. it's really executing and showing everything. But you know, for the beginner level code, you kind of want to see everything because you know that your code isn't running super long anyways. You'll have to like forgive me a little bit because I'm on the newbie side still in the two and a half years. But when I started, I, I introduced this to the seventh graders. We had just completed coding a simple app based on Michael Kennedy's birthday app. And it walks through how you set up the functions and to think about breaking apart the entire process. And we called a lot of, we didn't call a lot of functions. We defined a lot of functions in the beginning and it was nice to show them how it's stepping through the function. And then when we hit the main, how it pops back up to the Mm -hmm. function where it was being executed. And the, the concept of the return and the print was one of our focuses for the week. And it was just a nice feature and they were solidifying that idea. I kept saying to them, we're reading top down. So when you're looking for your errors or your errors in the code, this can help you go through it. And it was a neat process just to see their their minds go, okay, top down, I got it. And pop back up from the main. And uh, it kind of worked well with the little ones. We're talking 11, 12, 13 year olds, so. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, I actually don't have personal experience using this with in the K-12 level, which is why I'm really interested in talking to both of you about it, because a lot of people I know use it are at the, you know, at the university level or these online courses or beyond. So that's really good to hear. It's definitely a focus. So 
when we break apart in the younger years, we're breaking apart fine topics. Last week, we focused with the seventh graders on designing arguments and parameters within functions. And how do we return the function? How do we, what do we print the function? And how do we pull it together? So I think when you are at the younger level where you're not really a programmer yet, if you isolate the topic that you want to look at, it, it works really well in that aspect of the Python tutor. Cool. So. Cool. Thanks. So just to take a step back, because I think we kind of jumped right into <laughs> how what, how it works and how we're using it, but just to give it a bit of a definition. Um, so Python Tutor is this website that you created about 10 years ago. And as a new user for that site, I can go in there and paste basically standard Python code in there, and it will, will allow me to step through that code one execution step at a time. And at the same time it's doing that, it also visualizes the current working memory, the data structures, the, the frames, so I can see local scope, global scope, I can see dictionaries, lists, I can see objects in there. It gives me a lot of visualized information in the website, and I don't have to install anything for the students. I can just go to a website or even tell them, just go to pythontutor.org, I believe it is, right? Uh, it's .com, I think. .com, okay, yeah, yeah .com. <laughs> and they can paste in their code and start to see how their um, code actually works. And you have uh, Python in there and a few other languages too, right? Yeah, so it actually, you know, <laughs> despite the name, it actually works uh, reasonably well in a few other languages. So I implemented basically backends for, for JavaScript, C++, Ruby, which not many people use, and then Java, which was done by somebody else, which is act who is actually a Java instructor. So it actually, most of the languages are common for teaching intro, it works for, but still it works the best for Python because that's what it was originally made for. But yeah, but people have used it for other languages too. Nice, nice. So how many people have been using Python Tutor so far? I mean, are we talking like a, a thousand people, 10,000 people? It's been quite a lot. I mean, we estimate that just daily right now is probably in the tens of thousands in terms of daily users, especially every school year, the September it ticks up and then you can see kind of the flow. Um, and it's been growing every year steadily. So I would say the totals maybe in definitely in the millions, maybe even in the 10 millions over the decade. So it's been pretty widely used. And again, I think it's just because it's such a low barrier to entry that it's just a website you visit and start typing stuff in. So forgive me again. I'm going to tell you again how I do basic with it. And then maybe you can step me through of how a college student or a programmer would use this. For example, if I wanted to show the sixth graders or seventh graders how we reassign a variable. I start with num and I have it, what is your favorite number? And then I reassign number as a new number. I can see that and show them that it changes. How, taking it on, and this is for our listeners that are at our, our younger levels, how does it go up and what are the benefits to stepping through at the higher level? What are the college students possibly using it for? Yeah, you know, it's basically really similar to what you're using it for. It's just that some of the concepts are a bit more um, complex. So like one of the earliest power users of the system who actually helped me define a lot was um, the instructor of um, UC Berkeley's intro class. So their intro class is in Python. It was in Scheme before, but it's in Python. And it, it does, it goes into very advanced things with things like functional programming and higher order functions, nested functions, um, closures, these sorts of things. So the more sophisticated uses for it at the college level are this, these sorts of concepts where you actually see if you're defining functions and other functions, and there are these nested scopes and these closures, and that's really hard to 
understand if you're just drawing it out. If you're like, we have these weird nested functions, what does this print out? But then you actually see in the tool, like this has this parent thing here and then this other function exited, but it's still kind of around. So there's these things and also with just more object-oriented stuff. So with like inheritance and with kind of more complex language features, um, especially for JavaScript, you know, JavaScript inheritance and object-oriented stuff works kind of weirdly. So we kind of um, visualize the chains for that. But in general, it's really, I think the best use is having a teacher or a more advanced learner guide the use, right? So it's always been a dream of mine to have this be completely self-serve, right? So the dream is you paste in the code and actually tells you, it actually guides you and say, oh, this is a variable reassignment or this is whatever. But right now it obviously doesn't do that. It just kind of is a tool. And your question, Kelly, about the programmers use, some people have this dream of as a professional programmer, I'm just going to paste in all my code and try to debug it. But that doesn't really work that well for that because it's really for this sort of self-contained, pretty small educational examples. So I think the use cases really are broad, but they, they're all scoped within this educational use case. And the analogy I like to make is like on a whiteboard or a blackboard. So basically, it's basically like a really good virtual whiteboard. So whatever code you can write on the board and draw and show on the board, the Python tutor can do. So it obviously is not going to let you paste in 10,000 lines of code and debug your production level software because that's not what you do on the whiteboard anyways. Yeah, and it's a lot better than me. I take the recycle bin and always throw it into the garbage bin to explain variables and reassignment. <laughs> well, that could be cool too. That's, yeah. I'm a very energetic teacher when that's I'm... Good. when yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> And I was laughing when I read online the other last night about your favorite hardware. You said somewhere that was whiteboards. And oh, Sean, yes, that's right. <laughs> Sean and I have whiteboards everywhere on every piece of surface in our classroom. Oh, yeah. My, my home office here has these standing whiteboards because I don't mouth them. I just stand them on the floor. So I have like three or four of them. This is my home office. Yeah, so I, I love whiteboards. <laughs> nice, nice. You know, we've been actually, I think that's probably the biggest adjustment for us in, in teaching is how do we use our digital whiteboards mm-hmm. more effectively because it is a little bit different than being able to just grab a marker and start drawing. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this is, we can talk more broadly about these other sorts of tools too, but I think that's like, I think that is the challenge. You know, people have picked up their iPads and done other stuff or screen sharing and things. But yeah, just that, how do you get that fluidity of like, like using physical demonstrations or like it's when you're in the classroom, as you both know, you can just improvise and do these things. But how do you do that over a screen? I think is an yeah. interesting challenge. Well, we and that's have- one of the things that I had to remind myself with Python Tutor is that as I'm stepping through it, because it can draw everything so quickly, I have to force myself to slow down because normally I'd be spending the time Mm -hmm. drawing out the boxes and the arrows and things like that. And the students would have a chance to keep up with it. Now I can just kind of click next. And like, then I have all the students saying, well, what just happened? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the digital whiteboarding and using Python tutor has been more about making sure that I have all the students coming along with me, that we're all staying together as we go through the code. Yeah, the the related point there is that's that was the appeal of the, the Khan Academy style sketches or just, you know, I mean, the Khan Academy sketches is basically people writing on the whiteboard. And the appeal right. of manually drawing math or diagrams on whiteboard is that you, one, you slow down because you can only draw so fast. And two, you naturally talk aloud as you're drawing it. Whereas if you have a visualization or you have these, the, the typical thing is people make PowerPoint slides and then just give lectures, then you go really fast and the students don't see the process. So there is something to be said about this old school you're actually drawing it out yeah right yeah we we do a lot of 
stepping through, I guess I make them write notes and comments. We probably have the, the worst Pepite <laughs> designs uh, code, but it's filled with comments and everything. And I think that's one of the things that the Python tutor can bring into that uh, aspect is as maybe having them draw it out on the whiteboard mm -hmm. as the Python tutor is doing it. So that process that you had taken off the whiteboard and put into Python tutor, take the Python tutor and bring it back out to the whiteboard. It might be able to solidify more of that thought process for the kids. Yeah. So some people's activities they do, even before, uh, without visualizations, they just have the students write out what the values are. So they mm -hmm. kind of manually make a table, say, if we have three numbers, you know, just tell me what the numbers are as the loop goes. This is three, this is four, this is five. You know, that act of doing that just helps them. And I think you can do similar things. So what does the diagram look like after you finish running this code and have them draw it out? And it's interesting because people have done studies on this, of just really low tech studies of having students draw out what they think the data structures look like. And then you can see really common misconceptions. You're like, oh, everyone thinks like half the class thinks the arrows point the other way. I mean, we should explain why it points this way or something like that. Yeah, that, that has been kind of an interesting thing for us that we do these class code challenges where they are all writing code in a time within a time limit and sometimes it's they're just defining functions and there's no actual code there but it's just show us your functional structure and it's been really interesting to see the different ways that kids think that the even the simple function definition should be written mm -hmm. right like yep. that should have all the a lot of extra parentheses apparently and <laughs> you can you can use more than one def keyword like so there's all these things that we find and from that confusion, it helps us know where to really focus our our explanations and our attention on how to help make that clearer for them. You just gave me the best idea ever when you guys were talking. So I don't know if you've ever seen a Mula's Academy, A-M-U-L-Y-A. Um, this person steps through the patterns of nested for loops and makes oh. these really cool patterns with numbers and stars. And oh, the way cool. that they, they write out the... Um, I don't know who it is, girl, guy, I don't, I, I can't remember, the voice is a, a little bit in between, I'm sorry, but the way that it's written out on the whiteboard is so cool, and I'm, I think I'm going to play around with that and put some of that in the Python tutor, because trying cool. to figure out the thought process, is, you'll love these yeah, Sean, I'm looking at the YouTube video. Um, <laughs> they get pretty intense of the way that they're figuring out how to code them. So I was just thinking about that's going to be pretty cool to put in through the Python tutor. I see. So they're just printing it out to the terminal, the stars yeah. or patterns. Yeah. So that's cool. But yeah, it's so the we, thought yeah. process of how it's done mm -hmm. is all coded out on the whiteboard. That's cool. Yeah. Very math mathematic. <laughs> Sorry. So... I have a couple other questions about Python Tutor, but then we also, since you haven't taught this with K through 12, we wanted to give you a chance to yeah. ask us some questions about how we're using it and thoughts and things like that. But with this many users on there and, and the way that it's architected in terms of the really lightweight, not a lot of logins, things like that, how do you have this running? Like what kind of uh, hardware does it run? Is it cloud-based? Is it on a you know Raspberry Pi sitting in your closet? <laughs> yeah, so it's actually just on a $10 a month shared hosting plan. Uh, even though it has a lot of traffic, nowadays modern web hosting plans are pretty good. So the main server runs on just like this $10 a month um, shared hosting, just like a Linux uh, server with Apache. And it just kind of spawns off these Python processes in this really lightweight sandbox. And they, I have some other servers for the other languages just for 
logistical, historical reasons. But, you know, even if it gets a lot of users, I can actually just look at the real-time logs now. You know, it's, it's getting maybe a few requests a second, right? So it's not like running Google Facebook scale where things are just melting. So right. even if you get a bunch of users a day, because again, it's so lightweight, it doesn't require a lot of state and everything, you can just pretty easily run on a pretty you know, low cost hosting service. So that hasn't, knock on wood, that hasn't been a major issue yet. <laughs> yeah, well, especially since a lot of the time is waiting, right? Like it's the user is thinking about what they're seeing, they're looking at it, and then they hit next. And it, all it has to do is render the next step in the process. So it can be pretty, I can see where it can be pretty lightweight. Yeah, so actually speaking of that, so what actually happens is when you run the code, so you write your code and when you run the code that goes to the server and it runs Python or whatever other language um, using the debugger. So it's using the exact same PDB or whatever debugger it's using. It runs it all and then it logs all the uh, values at every step. Um, into a JSON trace that it goes back to the front end. So by the time you actually go to the visualization, everything's already in your browser. So that's why you can go back and forth instantly. Wow. So when you're going back, that's why that's why you can go back and forth because everything's already been run and it's in your browser. So when you're interacting with it, it doesn't actually go to the server anymore. So it only goes when you hit that visualize button. That's why it takes that's a second cool. or so. I, and the little slider. I love the slider. <laughs> Yeah, so that seems magical, right? The slider so is cool nice. it seems, seems like magic because you can go backwards. But in fact, it's because the whole program's already there. You can tell a middle school teacher. Because <laughs> I was showing the kids, I was like, ooh, wow. Yeah, that was great. Ooh. I mean, this is, because when people think about regular debuggers, right, you can only step forward for most yeah. debuggers. So this ability to step backward is big because like when you're stepping forward, you might not get everything. So hey, let's go back a step and see what's going on and go see it again. But yeah, it's all, there's there's no, now I reveal, there's no magic behind the scenes because the trick really is that the whole program has run and that's why it's really used for these small scale programs. Well, we're definitely going to be putting, I, I don't know if we finish it. We have these choice boards where we have the students choose what assignments they want to complete for the week seven out of nine or whatever i I see this in the in its future of walking through their functions for the card game because we have them go through the card game of whatever card they want and that trying to organize the functions within the main always gets them and they don't understand how to put it in so i see something coming out we'll we'll, we'll send it to you if we once we make it yeah. up <laughs> i mean a, a related idea along this front because you all have been talking about screencasts and recordings like i think it'd be really awesome if the students step through it and just make a short screencast right? oh tell tell me what you think is happening in your code just make a few minute video saying step and then just explain it that'll be fascinating for all of y'all too because you can mm-hmm. see oh wow these students really get it or wow they actually have a misconception they think this thing is happening but it's actually not happening. Or y'all can make, you know, screencasts with lessons and stuff like that. Great well, it idea. really gives us a, it gives us an opportunity to give them feedback, um, mm-hmm. and that's the most valuable thing, especially when we're, we're distance learning. If they can send in something that we can see an insight into their thought process, that gives us a unique opportunity to help them maybe reframe it or think about it in a different way through our feedback. So we are trying to go well beyond the idea of like, oh yeah, you just got eight out of 10 points with right, no right. no comments. It's really the feedback that matters. And also just thinking, these are why we love these podcasts because I, we generate a lot of ideas during these podcasts. <laughs> but that concept that everyone's talking about, a lot of our listeners always ask us about grading and how do we keep everyone from not being honest when they're submitting code. That idea of dumping in code and having that them explain what's mm-hmm. happening is a great reflection piece, like you said. Yeah, 
we'll show think, their learning. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I didn't even think about the grading part, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the old school way of doing oral exams is like that, that it's very hard to scale, obviously, but if you have a few students, you if you have them, you, know, you ask them questions and you make them explain their thought process, it's pretty hard to cheat on that if you don't actually know it, right? because <laughs> you have to actually explain it rather than just saying, what does this answer print out or something? Very exciting. I'm excited. Yeah. I've got two <laughs> questions on my choice board for next week. <laughs> Hopefully your students don't, you know, hate it and then blame me for this well, podcast. Well, do, do your students listen to the podcast? Some of them do. We always joke around. That's we're, so we're like, we made a podcast about that. <laughs> so, Philip, do you have questions for us about how we're using Python Tutor or um, what it's like to, to teach Python in a K-12 setting versus uh, university level? Yeah, so I guess my kind of questions that I'd have is what features would you like in it to support teachers? So the context for all this is that I have so far not really focused on making it a kind of end-to-end experience. As you see, it's a very bare-bones sort of tool, which is I think it works really well that way because, you know, I have all these other things to do too. (laughs) And the only way it's kind of sustained is because I kept it very simple. Uh, But now I've been thinking about reaching out to teachers more directly and thinking about what things could, could I implement that would be reasonably easy to implement, but actually could help support teachers in in using it in interesting ways. So if you have thoughts about that, like, oh, I really wish that we could add this thing to here, that'll be, well, there's no guarantees, but I'm interested to hear. For me, I think the layout for the kids, trying to get them to get into it and see what to do, even though it's completely clear for us as adults, sometimes they they see a little bit of small words or anything mm-hmm. in font less than 12, and they're like, ooh, it's adult stuff. Um, <laughs> Fine so print, I, yeah. yeah. So I always think of uh, how Nick Tolervey did designed Moo. Mm-hmm. And I think even just as simple of a big button versus squares of next and first and less writing on it, just the three boxes and the slider and the first next, that you could easily implement that straight away into the middle school, high school level. The program's great. It's that's just a great, that, that's a great thought, yeah. yeah. And you could imagine just a styling thing. And yeah, I mean, you imagine there's systems like Scratch and other things that are more geared toward younger students that like the user interface is so important, right? Because mm-hmm. you want to have it be really intuitive for them. That's a great idea. Yeah, just colored a little bit, put a little colors on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one I was going to ask for is actually already there. Um, is the ability to, to generate links back mm-hmm. to the code. So that was a thing that I, I guess I didn't realize was there, but would be most helpful for me. When we do assignment submissions, we do a lot of our assignments with a learning management system where the students can submit an assignment. We ask them to paste in a link to like a collab notebook mm-hmm. or paste in a screenshot of their code, but having them generate a link to, here's my visualization of my code is also really helpful. So if that permanent link is going back to a immutable version of what they submitted, then I can use that for assignment submissions and be able to know that the code that I'm looking at is the same one that they actually created and hasn't been changed since then. Yeah, so the links itself, you know, again, all this is super low tech, but the link itself actually just contains all the information. Like literally, that's why the URL is so long. They used to, Google used to have a URL shortener that we could use, but they discontinued that. So I used to have these Google shortened links. You can probably hook it up to bit.ly or tiny URL or whatever, but I just haven't. So if you, if you actually say generate link, that link is actually unique because it actually, what it contains is it contains the code. And then it contains like, if they've actually stepped through it, it contains like, oh, we're on step five. So if you actually paste that link in your browser, it will re-execute, go to the server, re-execute, and then go to line five or whatever. So that those are 
fairly stable. And the one thing I can improve on that is just making a minified link so that it's easier to post. That might help just because sometimes they paste it over and they're putting it into like a Google Doc or something like that. Yeah, that's um, long and stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah. So question, what does it mean on the heap? I actually like that style where it shows it outputs a string on the objects. What does it mean, render all objects on the heap? Oh, yeah. So the so one of the, this is a broader issue. So one of the issues is that there's often ambiguous ways to draw these things, right? So for example, the classic thing is in, in Python, also in Java and other languages, is a string just a primitive object that you can just, A goes to the string, or is it actually object somewhere else and you actually have a pointer, that arrow that points to it. And it turns out that for Python, it doesn't really matter because the strings are immutable, so are numbers. So it doesn't matter where you draw it because you, it's not like you can modify that string or that number anyways. So by default, we just inline it so that you could say A goes to the string. But some people want to show that the strings are actually objects floating around somewhere where there's a pointer to it, also numbers too that point to it. So, you know, again, these labels are not the most intuitive, but, you know, there are several customizations that people can do if they want the diagrams to look a little different. But in general, I've tried to just say, like, here's the way we draw it. And then you just kind of have to work around it because we can't customize every (laughs) single other thing. But I agree that the, that, yeah, that it could be better in terms of explaining maybe what those options mean. Yeah. I just like, I like the way that looks for them thinking again for the little kids I always tell them if you start saying str and int then you're going to be able to think about later on in coding and how you want to cast a different data type so it's kind of nice to use it for me as on the heap yeah so. yeah so the different <laughs> options are yeah and I think that the general theme of this conversation is really a lot of this has to be kind of instructor-led that if the students didn't have you saying well, we're going to use this option and here's why they would be confused. They're like, what, mm-hmm. which one do I choose? Like, why is this looking a little different? So I think ultimately, it's ultimately we still all have jobs in a sense, right? That this is not all <laughs> automated away. It's not like they can just go to this thing and paste in code and automatically learn everything. It's really a, it's like the whiteboard. It's really a thing to facilitate teaching. Yeah, they still think that we don't do anything. <laughs> They're just like, you're not teaching us. I'm like, what do you mean? Have you learned Python? Oh yeah, well, I guess you have. <laughs> we do a lot of facilitating. So, so Philip, in addition to Python Tutor, what other tools and things have you worked on that maybe people should check out? Yeah, so on my webpage has a bunch of academic research on mostly focusing on adult learners. So there's all of our research papers, the PDFs are online, so they're freely available for people to read. And then my students have worked on a variety of other sorts of educational tools and such, but none of them have taken off in that way. Most of them are research prototypes that we write papers about, we do user studies on and such. So I have a fairly broad portfolio at this point. It's funny because it's like this Python to your thing's a really concrete thing I can point to, but everything else is like a, you can just link to my webpage and people can check check out the stuff. But a lot of our research is around different user populations and how they, you know, learn programming or data analysis and what kinds of unique challenges they face and stuff and conversations we, we start around that. Nice. So I'm going to see if I can formulate this this question, but you do data science, cognitive science, you're studying how people sort of learn with computers. Teachers are always constantly doing that, but sometimes we don't necessarily do it right or right away. Any tips? This is going to be crazy. Like how, because we're constantly making our own studies and changing and adapting curriculum. Any tips for teachers of just 
when to say aha or how to document maybe a, a study that they have? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, I think, I mean, I think that things like this, like these podcasts y'all running or some teachers have blogs where they write up their experiences. I think those are so valuable or on things like Twitter or people sharing insights. I think it's so valuable because as people who are in the field doing this, you have these on the ground insights and like, especially in the K-12 level, you're all so busy <laughs> with the day-to-day that it's very, it's often hard to step back and reflect. But, you know, the podcast that you all are doing and some of the teachers with blogs or on social media, I think those are often the best sorts of ways for people to document in this sort of very informal way. And then, like, if people go to conferences and if they're academic researchers who go and want to collaborate or kind of work with people at your schools, these things kind of organically come about. But I'm a, I'm a very kind of empirical on the ground person. And I, I really believe that a lot of really interesting science starts from observation, right, from direct observation. And this is, this is in the history of natural sciences this way, that before we understood, we had all these equations to understand physics or thermodynamics or chemistry, we had people out in the field observing. We had people trying out stuff and tinkering and saying, oh, this steam thing seems to be good. And then people are like, oh, let's see, understand how heat works or heat transfer works. So I think a lot of this on the ground stuff that everyone's doing is great. And and as people who are in kind of more academic research, I really love reading these sorts of blogs and listening to these podcasts because like that really kind of connects us to what people are actually doing out, out in the world. Very cool. I would love to have you come back, Philip, and talk to us about taking those observations and maybe collecting data, like how teachers who are trying to figure out patterns and trends in their classroom, things to help people learn better, can gather more concrete data. So it might be a a great uh, time to come back and have you talk about experiment design and things like that for the classroom as just a next step, because that's something that has always been interesting, I know, to me and also to Kelly. (laughs) That's why he knows to cut cut me off. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, Yeah. that'll be be great to talk about in the future. I mean, again, the caveat is that I'm not an expert on this at all. I've never done research in K-12. There's obviously a lot of challenges with parental consent and all the kind of privacy challenges, but I think a lot of really interesting work could be could be done here. And especially in the computer science realm that you two have this kind of this lab that you have all these students coming through, you're iterating so much on your on your coursework even throughout the year. You know, there have been people who are researching K twelve in computer science, but I think that like I have I I don't know that much about people who are actually practicing it and also doing it as well because i think there's a ton of potential in this because at the college level a lot of people research education at the college level because we're in this environment because that's the the kind of joke goes that so much of research is on undergraduate students because that's what that's the population we all have access to so i think that that the younger population could be great so that's awesome very cool very cool so uh for our listeners who want to connect with us who want to ask questions if you'd like to connect with philip you can visit our website at teachingpython.fm we're also on twitter at teaching python kelly is at kelly pared on twitter i am at sm tiber on twitter and spotify so if you want to follow me there you can too no peloton this week (laughs) okay well that was last week this what I actually want to do is start like just throwing in random social media random networks. I've joined. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, they shut down my MySpace, so I can't put that in anymore. <laughs> 
um, <laughs> somewhere out there in the dark web or our MySpaces back <laughs> in, our, in our archive. In our archive. Probably <laughs> archive somewhere. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it is, and I would be horrified to go back and find it. But uh, <laughs> we also want to thank all of our Patreon sponsors who help keep the show running and keep the lights on for us. We really appreciate your support. If you'd like to become a sponsor, the link will be in the show notes. And I think that does it for this week. So I'd just like to thank you, Philip, for joining us and talking about your project and your research. It's been wonderful to get to know you, and we hope to have you back soon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd be happy to talk. And then, you know, y'all can check out the pythontutor.com link. You can just put it in the episode notes and everything. It'd be awesome. Excellent. Perfect. And are you on Twitter? That is a funny question. We could do a whole episode about this. So <laughs> I used to be... I used to be pretty active online in, in many ways. So I had a podcast, I had a huge blog, I had Twitter, I had it all. I, had, I didn't have MySpace though. And then just this summer, I decided to, you know, starting this year, it was my year of just getting off everything. So I'm, I am trying to be as invisible as possible now, but uh, it's all in the archive, so. <laughs> so for our listeners that want to get in touch with Philip, just send your carrier pigeons in the general direction <laughs> of right. UC San Diego yep. and he will get it. That's right. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly, signing off.